Good evening, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Super. Um, my name's Jonathan Hill, and I'm director of the Institute of Middle Eastern Studies here at King's College London. And I'm delighted to welcome the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies, or BRISMES, as it's uh, more widely known, um, here, and Professor Lale Khalili, who is going to, uh, in a few moments, deliver the annual uh, BRISMES uh, lecture. I'm not going to introduce Professor Khalili. That task falls to the officers of BRISMES. Uh, I'm going to instead plug the Institute of Middle Eastern Studies. Um, we've been around for about 18 months, and we have uh, just over 30 faculty members and um, double, triple that uh, postgraduate students uh, attached to us as well, PhD students and master's students across uh, a dozen departments. Um, our main uh, activity is uh, organizing events on the region, and we have uh, a full calendar of talks, book launches, workshops, and other things. We try to have at least one event a month. Uh, we've got a book launch coming up uh, next month on the 5th of December. Um, these events are always open to the public. You can find out details about them through our website, and you can also sign up to them through our website as well, as you have done for tonight's lecture. So if you are interested in the region, and if you know anybody else who's interested in the region, do please keep an eye on our website, follow our Twitter account, and come along to our various presentations. Thank you very much. Okay, hello, welcome. My name's uh, John Chalcraft. I'm a professor of Middle East history and politics at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, and I'm also the secretary of Brisbane's, the British Society for Middle East Studies. And uh, you'll notice we've been pluralized in the notice outside because it says the British Societies for Middle East Studies, but actually we're not, you know, this grand coalition of many societies, but we are one society and we are definitely in the business of trying to pluralize and diversify and generally to become more democratic and progressive. So it's really a pleasure to welcome you all. And, uh, and I think, you know, who better than to have Professor Lale Khalili to give our Brismes annual lecture. Um, you, you know, she has this tremendous uh, 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 track record in border crossing and transnational and critical research. So who better than Lale to signal uh, a new direction for the British society or societies of uh, Middle East studies. So uh, uh, yeah, just to say something about what you know, we're doing in Brismes uh, now. We're hoping to move in more democratic and progressive and critical directions. We're looking to reach out uh, in new ways uh, to civil society and to uh, uh, campaigners and others who are engaged in critical forms of pedagogy and education in Middle East studies. We're making lots of changes to our governing documents. We are abolishing the old hierarchical distinction between students and faculty, partly by giving students the right to vote. We're also studying 
uh, with a view to respecting the views of members, the resolution to boycott Israeli academic institutions that was passed overwhelmingly at the AGM on the 24th of June. And within, <laughs> within uh, UK charity law and on the basis of appropriate professional advice, we're seeking ways to implement and engage more fully with that resolution. We're also doing a number of other things. We're thinking of trying to write the idea, you know, given that academic freedom is under so much threat, and in particular in Middle East studies, uh, we're thinking of ways to incorporate uh, a more robust defense of academic freedom into the, uh, our aims as a society. And we're also developing the activities of the Committee on Academic Freedom. And also, we're proud to announce that we have our annual conference in Kent, uh, in Canterbury, uh, next year, June 29 to the 1st of July. Please put it in your diaries. The theme is Power, Knowledge, and Middle Eastern Studies, and it encourages you to think about decolonizing knowledge and pedagogy in uh, teaching and research on the Middle East. And the deadline for that, if you're applying and putting in a panel or something, is the 25th of November. So that's quite soon. So I look forward to, to seeing you. But I think that's probably more than my time uh, allotted. It's very nice to see you all. And above all, it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Professor Lale Khalili to give our annual lecture. And on that note, you don't have to clap me, but do clap Lale. And uh, <laughs> I'll hand over to Nicola to introduce her. Okay. the song. All right. Okay. So good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Brismas Annual Lecture of 2019. Um, I wanted to start off by saying a few thank yous. Uh, very importantly, thank you to uh, the Middle Eastern Institute at King's, or sorry, the Institute for Middle Eastern Studies, sorry, at King's for hosting us this evening. And um, a big thank you to Bailey Doyle, who is not with us now, but who was um, very uh, indispensable in uh, organising things on the uh, on the King's end. So thank you to her. Um, my name is Nicola Pratt, and I'm the Vice President of Brismas, and I'm also a reader in the International Politics in the Middle East at the University of Warwick. It's a great pleasure and honour to introduce tonight's speaker, Professor. Khalili, Professor Lale Khalili, who is a professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London. Um, before that, um, for the previous 15 years, she was a professor at, uh, at, the, at, at SOAS in the University of London. Um, great loss to SOAS, a great gain to Queen Mary. Um, I think that Professor Khalili is one of the most brilliant scholars of our generation, teaching and researching on Middle East studies, um, particularly contemporary Middle East. She's conducted research into the workings of transnational movements of people, power, ideas and practices, and most recently of capital and cargo. Her analyses stand out for their attention to gender, racialization, colonial forms of power and violence, as well as for political economy. Her research is exceptionally rich, 
drawing on archival and ethnographic methods, as well as interviews with diverse actors. Although her focus of interest is the Arab world, she refuses to study the area in isolation. Uh, she highlights the relationships between the region's politics and geopolitical asymmetries and its connections both eastward and westward. She's the author of Heroes and Martyrs of Palestine, The Politics of National Commemoration, and Time in the Shadows, Confinement in Counterinsurgencies, which was awarded the Susan Strange Best Book Award of 2012 by the British International Studies Association, and the 2014 Best Book Award of the International Political Sociology Section of the International Studies Association. Her most recent book, Sinews of War and Trade, will be published in spring of 2020 with Verso. In addition, she's written many articles, book chapters, as well as editing volu book volumes and special journal issues on, amongst many things, political violence, counterinsurgencies, the politics of pleasure, infrastructure and logistics, and collective memory. In addition to being an outstanding scholar, she is also an incredibly generous mentor for early career scholars and students, many of whom are here tonight. I would like to thank Professor Khalili for agreeing to give this lecture, which is entitled the Corporal Life of Commerce at Sea. Please join me in welcoming her. First of all, it's incredibly lovely to see everybody's faces around here. I recognize so many faces and it's wonderful to see you all. Second, I'm incredibly grateful for uh, first the generous introduction by both John and Nicola, but also importantly for being invited um, to give this lecture to a business that seems to be transforming in all sorts of exciting ways working with some unbelievably wonderful uh, students um, in Middle East studies. It is really exciting to see them actually get their democratic rights within an institution that is supposed to represent them and to which they greatly contribute in an intellectual um, and organizational sort of way. So that um, uh, the, the promise of a uh, democratic and open business is very exciting and I'm very happy to be here to give a lecture. All right, so... When I first traveled on a freighter, the shipping agent who had arranged my travel booked me into a seafarer's hotel in Malta. The first time I saw so many seafarers in one place, I wasn't sure what I was expecting, but something rowdy, loud, and salty. I imagined men, because most seafarers, because seafarers are still mostly men, who walked with a slightly swaying wide gait, um, expecting the solidity of the land to give way to the sway of the sea. I suppose they would speak a particular and peculiar transnational argot. Of course, I was all wrong. I met a large number of Filipino and Eastern European seafarers at that sailor's hotel in the port of Marsaschlop, about 10 miles southeast of the Maltese capital, Valletta. They were mostly quiet and polite young men, mostly in their 20s and 30s, and they socialized with their own countrymen speaking in Croatian or Tagalog. As I learned later aboard the ship, nationalities structured their conviviality in ways that their social class, rank or ratings, wages, did not. In the mornings, when I came down to the Spartan dining room for breakfast, 
The seafarers on their way home after four or nine months stints at sea were often hungover. Those arriving at the hotel with its bare rooms and creaky single beds to board ships for four or nine months stints seemed restless and anxious. The seafarers gazed at me curiously whenever they encountered me, and I imagine they must have wondered what I was doing there amongst them, this lone woman older than most of them by a decade or two, and definitely a landlubber. They mostly left me alone. I had arrived in Marseilles at the end of January 20, 2015, planning to steam on a freighter, the massive CMA CGM container ship Corte Real. CMA CGM is the world's third largest shipping company after the Danish Maersk, who most people recognize, not only because of their containers, but because Lego actually builds lots of Maersk stuff, and the Italian MSC. CMA CGM is owned by a Lebanese-Syrian Saade family who moved to Marseille in 1975 from Lebanon, set up a roll-on, roll-off vehicle carrier company there, and expanded into container and bulk transport, and eventually bought the old French colonial shipping behemoth, uh, Compagnie Générale Maritime, privatized in the flurry of 1990s neoliberal reforms in France. CMA CGM's stylish headquarters, designed by Zaha Hadid, sits offshore, uh, sits overlooking the port in Marseille, but their shipping hub is located in Marseilleschlock, 700 uh, miles offshore. Malta's island location, equidistant from both the European and North African coasts, and its extant infrastructures, including its character as something in an offshore haven within the European Union, makes it a perfect transshipment port. Transshipment ports receive massive container ships like CMA CGM's Corte Real, which is about 365 meters in length and capable of carrying 14,000 containers or more than 150,000 tons of goods and distribute some of their goods to their nearby coast via smaller feeder ships. The ships then sail to the industrial ports of northwestern Europe toward, or towards the East Asian ports that dispatch the goods produced in the factory of the world, China. Three days after arriving in Marseilleschlot, I was finally given the signal to board the ship. And I want to note, because I love the Maltese language, because I, although I couldn't understand the Italian half of it, the Arabic half of it was completely understandable. And, it's, and the word Marseilleschlot actually means the port or the haven from Schlock or the Scirocco wind, so the Khamsin wind. So um, it's, it's an amazing place to be. It um, feels like an alternate Arab universe. Three days after arriving in Marseilleschlock, I was finally given the signal to board the ship. That was the beginning of the first of two journeys, 20 months apart, from Malta to Jabal Ali, Dubai, on two different CMA CGM ships. The two journeys were radically different in many ways, even if their starting and end points were the same. One took place at the peak in global trade, and the ship steamed through the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, the Arabian Sea, the Gulf of Oman, and the Persian Gulf, Persian Arabian Gulf, at breakneck speed, with very few intermediate stops, only then to be forced to remain at anchor off the coast of Jabal Ali, Dubai, waiting for a berth to come free. The second journey took longer, and the ship, CMA CGM Callisto, took in a number of other ports, including Damietta, Beirut, Mersin, and Jeddah, before arriving in its destination. During both journeys, I spent hours every day speaking to the seafarers in the wheel room or on the deck, and less frequently in the engine room. I ate all my meals with the officers, that was what was required of passengers, and socialized with the crew after hours. 
This lecture draws on those weeks of ethnography, as well as archival research, and also a deep dive in literary texts in Arabic and English to make a twofold argument. First, that to understand the workings of global trade, of the macro-historical, gargantuan movements of capital, cargo, and people across the vast oceans, sometimes it helps to zoom in on the micro-political, on the embodied lives of seafarers at sea, on the quotidian life of labor, tedium, longing, loneliness, and camaraderie aboard the ships today. Work is imprinted on the body and on affects and thoughts. Life aboard ships transforms lives and bodies and personhoods. But these transformations are themselves shaped by the environment that the sailors in inhabit, the times in which people live, the spaces they traverse, the rules that structure their day-to-day -day labor. The mega freighters of today, like the whalers that Herman Melville wrote about in all of his novels, but especially in Moby Dick, are in some ways some of the most transnational micro-environments in the world. And the human-sized experiences of racialization at work, the embodied and affective experiences of striated social relations aboard the ship, all trace the shifting terrain of racial capitalism in our time. Second, I have begun a lecture for the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies, not societies, with an account of a ship peopled with Filipino and Croatian seafarers birthed at a port in, Mar at a port in Malta, admittedly on their way to the Middle East. So many of the ports thousands of miles from the ports of Arabian Peninsula bear striking similarities to the ports of Arabian Peninsula. Yes, Malta and Maltese, the Maltese language bear the mark of their encounter with and placement within a larger maritime Arab milieu. But perhaps more important, the location of Malta in a global colonial cartography is evocative, for example, of Aden's location. And if CMACGM is, colossus, is a colossus of shipping, it is also a distillation of accumulation of Arab capital on European shores. I'm here arguing that the way Arab ports and shipping are embedded in the maritime world <clears throat> is a lens through which we can understand a transnational Middle East today. The life of seafarers touching on Arab ports says a great deal about the regimes of labor there but also the transformation of Arab ports says much about the transformations in global capital today. Some of the most egregious stories about hunger ships, about which I will speak later, the most atrocious instances of shipboard exploitation involve shipping firms and states of the Arabian Peninsula. And they provide a window into the regimes of labor assembled on a foundation of racialized, unprotected, super-exploited labor. Perhaps one of the most vexing problems of our times is how to reconcile the possibility and promise of transnational mobilization with the rising tides of conservative nationalism that seem to engulf the world today. Some of the best thinkers worrying about the problems and possibilities of transnational solidarity have looked to the labor and life world of seafarers aboard ships as providing one avenue and exemplar of the possibilities of solidarity. In his Mariners, Renegades, and Castaways, which was an analysis of Herman Melville's writing, and especially Moby Dick, written by C.L.R. James while he was in immigration detention on Ellis Island in the US, 
That great Caribbean thinker famously celebrates the work of seafarers aboard ships as, and I quote, a world allegiance, a world federation of modern industrial workers who owe allegiance to no nationality. They owe no allegiance to anybody or anything except the work they have to do and the relations with one another on which that work depends. It's a very utopian view. The poignancy of announcing these protocols of exhortation and expansiveness from under the shadow of domination in Edward Said's evocative phrase is apparent to see. But only pages earlier, C.L.R. James had lamented the racial doctrine of every nation state that in his view impoverished the political imaginary. So there was a tension in his writing. Paul Gilroy similarly contrasts the transnationalism of working aboard uh, microsystems of linguistic and political hybridity, that's his phrase, to the narrow nationalism of so much else. And yet this tension between a transnational milieu of work and the very real limits on transnational solidarity is also something that I will touch on here. What I will do today in this lecture then is to describe the historical trajectory and transformation of what Marcus Redeker has called a life ruthlessly subordinated to work on ships in the Western Indian Ocean. Work on ships is inscribed on the bodies of the seafarers in particular ways which bears thinking about in the age of artificial intelligence, cyborgs, and devolution of skills having to do with reading the world machines. But I also want to talk about other ways that work aboard ships is corporeal. In many ways, living in our logistical age is an outcome of extraordinary changes in the nature of global capital. I will trace what these shifts have meant for shipboard labor by juxtaposing literary and historical accounts of work on ships in the Western Indian Ocean at the beginning of the 20th century and before with my own ethnographic account of shipboard labor. In particular, I will analyze the continuities and ruptures in forms of racialization, gendering, um, and, and personhood aboard ships, and in the institutions that engulf seafarers' life and work. So work aboard ships. Ships are total institutions. Wilhelm Obert, a Norwegian sociologist who'd researched seafarers aboard oil tankers in the 1950s and 1960s, described the remoteness at sea, qualifying to them to be a kind of a hidden society. Vivek Bolt, a current histo an historian of South Asian migration to Harlem, described the turn of century seafarers as semi-captive and hyper-exploited, but globally mobile. Again, you get this kind of attention. According to absorbing accounts by historians of the Atlantic world, seafarers in the age of sail were often an international bunch frequently pressed into service, forced into service, and living lives of terror and horror aboard ships. In the Arab world, the historian of pre and early modern seafaring, George Hourani, similarly described the dangers of shipboard work, and I quote here, sea voyages in those early modern days were full of hardship. To begin with, the ships were often overcrowded. Then there were lengthy stops in hot, humid ports where the ship was at the mercy of the local ruler. Expensive port dues and uh, presents had to be paid. And there would often be forced stays ending only when the possibilities of trade were exhausted. On the ocean, storms, reefs, and shallows were ever-present perils. Captain and crew felt only um, slightly less helpless than the merchants aboard ships. In the midst of huge waves, man was indeed a worm on a splinter. 
Add to this the terrible danger of pirates in their oared vessels, much faster in calms and light wind than any ship relying on sail alone. There could be, they could, and they could, these could be repelled only uh, by the action of fire-throwing marines carried aboard, except in the rare waters where a ruler kept uh, navy to safeguard shipping. This is 400 years ago. It actually, in some ways, echoes the ways in which piracy work aboard ships. Um, are similar, of course, manning ships has completely changed from being overcrowded to having 20, 30 people on a ship that's 365 meters long. Early 20th century accounts of pearling ships include stories of seafarers forced into work through debt bondage or the threat of the whip, while in other instances, coastal and transoceanic trade saw seafarers in their world engaged in the work, which was backbreaking and lonely, because of necessity, obligation, or the desire to engage in petty trade overseas. So many of the seafarers did petty trade as they traveled. The ships on which I steamed were modern mega freighters um, that flew the British Red Ensign. This matters because the flag under which a ship is registered determines which country's labor, environmental, and tax law the ship will abide by. The 20th century invention of flags of convenience or open registries, which unmoored ship's ownership structures from the flag it flew, was intended to also loosen the hold of tightening labor laws, union scrutiny, environmental inspections, and state tax claims on shipping companies. It is no surprise that the first ships that flew the flags of the earliest open registries, these flags of convenience, in Honduras and Panama, were the United Fruits banana boats and Standard Oil's tankers. Being under the red ensign of the British flag meant that I was on a well-inspected ship that would arrive, that could arrive in British ports and where working conditions aboard the ship were relatively better than most. But it is important to note that even European states with relatively better regulations now have international registries that have laxer rules aboard ships. Even more vexing, the Global Union Federation's struggle against the flags of convenience has itself not been without its controversies over the question of transnational asymmetries of power and access to shipboard employment. So major divisions within various global unions over these questions of who has access to these registries. What the move to international open registries has translated into is that limitations on the employment of foreign nationals aboard ships have been removed, but without requirements that the seafarers be paid at the same wage scale as national seafarers. In fact, under flags of convenience, a French-owned ship can fly a Panamanian or Liberian flag, those are the two biggest uh, flags of convenience, and play the seafarers aboard a fraction of what a French seafarer could have demanded. When, um, when uh, Exxon moved its half of its ships to flags of convenience, its wage bills dropped by about 60%. The international registries of European states also aspire to this degree of flexibility and labor arbitrage, but are more limited by some residual labor regulations here. This translates into ships whose manning structures reflect global inequalities. The ships I journeyed on were officered by Croatian officers, who are now less expensive than German or British officers would have been, and were crewed by Filipino and South Asian and Chinese seafarers. 
The Philippines now provides the largest percentage of seafarers in the world, though China is fast catching up and Russia, India, and Indonesia are not far behind. The Filipino seafarers on board the two CMACGM ships I sailed on were on long contracts. They spent nine months on board the ship and one month off, while the Croatian officers had four month long uh, contracts with the captain having a two month long contract and being permitted to bring his wife along on at least one journey per year. And then they all had one month off. In my conversations with the seafarers, it became clear that many of the Filipino, Chinese, and Asian men came not from port cities, but hinterland agricultural towns and villages. This had also been the case with both Yemeni and Bengali Lascars uh, aboard older European ships. Lascars were South Asian um, Arab, they were supposed to be South Asian definitionally, but they included also Arab, African, and Chinese seafarers. In an earlier uh, age, Debt bondage on farming, a bad year for harvest, or simply escaping the strictures of a small town drove many Arab, African, and Asian seafarers to the ports, where either local serangs or recruiters or shipping agency recruitment officers enlisted them for service on ships. Before the tightening of borders and demands for ever more entry paperwork in the Atlantic ports, which started in the 1900s onwards, and even sometimes thereafter, the seafarers jumped ship and went on to take jobs in factories, congregate in certain neighborhoods where sailor boarding houses proliferated, and transformed the areas near to the ports into lively cosmopolitan enclaves. They also created international networks across all continents. Alan Villiers, who had sailed on a dough from uh, Yemen to the east coast of Africa, describes in his stories, in his memoirs, a curious Yemeni Sayyid who was thinking of going to Congo to collect some dues. This um, Yemeni sailor seemed to speak a language Villiers could not understand. Turns out that he had been a sailor working the stokehold of steamships. He had been a coal worker in the stokehold of steamships. Jumped ship in New York, made his way to a Polish suburb of Detroit called Hamtrank, where he worked alongside the Polish residents in an automobile factory. The language he was speaking was Polish. He had then returned to Yemen, but his networks and connections reached across the seas. As far back as the 18th century, Wapping, Shadwell, and Whitechapel in London had been destinations for sailings jumping ship. Despite the horrified reaction of Christian missionaries ministering to these wayward seafarers in these neighborhoods, they and the wildly cosmopolitan residents therein seemed to have been thriving. The first recorded Arab communities of Britain were Yemeni seafarers of South Shields and Cardiff, uh, about whom um, has been quite a bit recently uh, great research done. The Jamaican communist poet and writer Claude McKay's novel, Banjo, similarly draws on his own experiences of having been on tramp ships. Tramp ships are ships that change directions um, just on a dime. And at the Viewport area of Marseille, and describes a cast of characters of African, Caribbean, Arab, and African-American seafarers whose itinerant and transgressive lives were challenges to the forms of discipline and containment enforced against them. In all these accounts, the seafarers circulating around the world carried with them accounts and experiences of lives overseas, brought with them new modes of organization and mobilization, and created now oft-forgotten communities and lives that lasted beyond their lifetimes and even beyond their residence overseas. Aboard the ship, 
work for the seafarers, many accustomed to hardship on land and in factories, could often be even more backbreaking, constant, and tedious than their previous experiences. On today's container ships, tankers, uh, car carriers, and bulk carriers, though so many tasks have been mechanized, labor is still tedious, repetitive, and especially when arriving at or departing ports, very stressful. The engine room of the container ships today are hellishly hot places. And like the old coal bunkers, they are below the sea level, subsurface. The engine room is not the sooty coal storage of the days of steam. It is gleaming and metallic, and the heat reflects off the instruments and the machinery. The pipes and machines in the room where the lubricating oil is heated to 135 degrees centigrade before it lubricates the engine are wrapped in heat-proof foil. And still the place scorches, especially as we go through the steamy heat of the Red Sea. The dozen or so men who work in the engine rooms are artisans doing miraculous repair work on the broken parts of this sophisticated and massive engine. In the heated space below deck, the engineers and electricians ensure that ships move through forward in the sea with the thrum of the engine reassuringly constant. Above deck, on the container ship, the deck crew fight a constant war to contain the damage to salt-encrusted and rust-caked walls and bodies of the ship. Sanding and washing and painting never ends, and the ships are so vast that by the time the whole of the ship is cleaned and repainted, the work would have to recommence. In addition, deck sailors have to, reg have to regularly keep watch over refrigerated containers to ensure that their temperatures are suitably cold. In the wheel room, the tedium of daily work has to do with endless paperwork. The first mate has to cut and paste new instructions and changes on the admiralty charts, messages from port control or various maritime security organizations, and there are dozens, most of which in the Indian Ocean are headquartered in Dubai, had to be received and filed. When arriving and leaving ports or crossing canals, paperwork has to be filled and filed. Hefty binders full of certificates and paperwork jostle for space on the shelves of the wheel room with instructions manuals and shipping directories. At sea, the officers in the wheel room have to mostly keep watch, um, looking to uh, long distances and their various screens to ensure the ship never gets too close to another ship or to subsea reefs and ridges and islands and submerged volcanoes. And the Red Sea is particularly treacherous in this regard. The nature of sociability aboard ships has also changed. Aboard the sailing ship, seafarers used to tell stories as they spun yarns to repair the ropes, which is why spinning yarns has become a kind of a um, stand-in for telling stories. In Moby Dick, Herman Melville describes a gam as a social meeting of two or more whale ships, generally on a cruising ground, when after exchanging hails, they exchanged visits by boats' crews the two captains remaining for the time on board one ship and the two chiefs, uh, chief mates on the other. In his, 1930, in his account of the 1938 voyage on the sailing dough, Villiers describes something similar. Not only did the captains visit their other ships while the two pulled abreast at sea, but also other seafarers aboard did as well. Villiers describes life on board companion ships went on very much as it did aboard ourselves. At least once a day, we somehow managed to be close enough to one of them for a yarn, during which the masters, mates, and crews of the vessels conversed quietly across the few yards of intervening sea. 
and now and again borrowed things from one another. We heard their moezines morning after morning give the call to prayer. There used to be a kind of race between three announcers of the three companionships. This form of sociability has disappeared as ship sizes have ballooned, and one cannot imagine them coming abreast at sea without an incident being in the offing. The seafarers of today socialize in other ways. In the ships I traveled on, the European officers would gather in the officers' sitting room, drink beers, and watch recordings of football games, films, and television uh, shows in Serbo-Croat. In the cruise room, on my first journey, I was invited to karaoke sessions because Filipino crew members often request a karaoke machine as part of their contracts. On the second journey, CMACGM had extended satellite internet connection to the seafarers. Before that, only the captain had access to satellite wavelengths and would gather emails and communications from the officers and crew and send them in bulk at night. Once the crew had access to internet, the socializing around karaoke pop songs seemed to have receded as the elephants stayed in their cabin, conversing with family members, cruising the web and watching porn, things they had only been able to do at court and even then at great expense. As both the historians of sailing ship and the sociologists of contemporary tankers, Radiker and Aubert, have written, the closed nature of the ship, it's often weeks-long isolation at sea, and the perpetual intimacy of the workers at work and at home in the same total institution means sometimes that seafarers want to escape one another by retiring to their shared cabins to speak to their families. But to me, it seemed that although the men could connect to their partners and children and families far more easily, and most beamed while showing me photographs of their children captured on Skype, their lives aboard the ship had become more solitary and less sociable. But life aboard ships wasn't only about the daily organization of work or the interactions between crew and officers. Perhaps because the ship is indeed, in Paul Gilroy's words, a living microcultural, micropolitical system in motion, and because it acts not only as a place of work, but a place of living and leisure for the seafarers, it also transforms the bodies of seafarers in perceptible ways. In the, in, the in the next few minutes, I want to speak a little bit about the bodies of seafarers. In his study of British colonialism in the Indian Ocean, the great maritime historian Fra Frank Brose has called seafarers the muscles of empire. The label is not mere metaphor. In the studies of gender, queer, and trans politics, debility and sexuality, and critiques of race, the body often takes four stage. It is intransigent, disciplined, forced into normative shapes and behaviors and manners. It is sensual and sensuous. Its sensory functions are central to the formation of our subjectivities. Movements require bodies. Politics requires bodies. The social requires bodies. Sex requires bodies. Thinking, working, creating all require bodies. Yet a great deal of thinking and writing about work aboard ships and on the docks are disembodied. Not that the bodies are absent, the body is marked, even shaped by political and social relations. But for Judith Butler, it is never just a static organism upon which social forces are enacted. It is also shaped by the subjectivities and political orientations of the person. Its materiality is constantly in flux and performative. <clears throat> but that which is embodied does carry the marks of the political opponent. 
This recognition of the embodied as social and political also courses subcutaneously in the works of Fanon, who in his black skin, white masks foreshadowed the slogans of Black Lives Matter. Fanon wrote that anti-colonial revolt was happening everywhere, quote, because quite simply, it was in more than one way becoming impossible for us to breathe, end quote. Perhaps apropos of this inability to breathe, I want to start with the stokehold of old steamships and move to the engine rooms of today, because no other place on the ship is as suffocating to seafarers as these zones. Stokers or firemen, the men who poured the coal into the uh, bunker, and trimmers who brought the coal from one location to the uh, engine room, Seafarers that worked below the surface of the sea in the infernal bowels of the ship shoveled coal into the engine or hauled it from storage into the coal bunker. They were in the Anglophone world called the Black Gang because of the way their skins were perpetually coated in coal dust. In the Indian Ocean, these men were often recruited from Aden or Somalia or from Silhet because in the racialized geographic determinism of the time, they were thought to be able to stand the heat better. In his magisterial account of Lascar's aboard sh uh, shipboard labor, Gopal Balakrishnan describes the work. Scalding hot workplaces where temperatures could exceed 60 degrees centigrade, especially in the Red Sea. Engine rooms have with good reason been called hell holes. Burning, scalding, and heat asphyxiation were the common lot of engine room crews, particularly in the Mediterranean and in tropical waters where firemen had often to douse themselves with buckets of water before opening the furnace door and after shutting it. To the dangers of accidental death in the engine room, one may add that of being crushed by sudden shifts and heaving masses of coal. Coal bunkers could be at a considerable distance from the engine room on large vessels, with depleting coal stocks further increasing the distance on the as the voyage progressed. Trimmers developed permanent bruises, which they called badges, on the sides of their shoulders from knocking repeatedly against narrow, heaving walkways whilst attempting to balance themselves against the roll and pitch of the vessel as they wheeled coal from the bunkers to the engine room." End quote. The trimmers were the lowest paid men on the ships, and they literally bore the mark of their work on their bodies. There were other ways in which work at sea transformed bodies. All of the engine room men that I had met had burns, and many of them actually had little bits of their fingers missing, because many of them worked on different creating machining, machined different uh, bits of the engine. And so they actually missed more bits than almost anybody else aboard the ship. But there were other ways in which work at sea transformed bodies. The seafarers working aboard the massive freighters of today do not have the gait of the sailors of yore who worked on land as they did aboard ships, keeping the body in balance. But there was a time that the wide gait of sailors hinted at not only their quotidian walk aboard ships, but also particular forms of masculinity. The great chronicler of capitalism among his hundreds of books, Honoré de Balzac, has described this wide stance in a book He's written only on walking, on gates. The, uh, the, the passage about sailors says, sailors remain with legs apart and always ready to bend or contract. Obliged to sway about on the deck with the swell of the waves, they are rendered incapable of walking straight on dry land. With all this sidestepping, they would do well to become diplomats, end quote. Um, 
But he also compares the sailors to military men. And so there is a very implicit form of masculinity that is being written into the bodies of the sailors because of the gait. But with the ships being flat-bottomed and heavily laden today, walking on deck is not that different than walking on land, unless the sea is stormy, and not always then either. We sailed through monsoon weather in the Arabian Sea, and as 10-meter-high waves crashed against the hull, the ship did not list or feel unstable at all. This is not always the case, of course, as the first ship I steamed had come through the Bay of Biscay, where in heavy storms it had listed so far that all the mobile furniture had to be chained down, and it had lost a couple of containers, actually. There were other ways that the ships and the seafarers themselves shaped their bodies aboard the ship. Most ships contain gymnasia in which cardio and table tennis equipment are provided alongside weightlifting paraphernalia. On both ships, the European and Filipino seafarers had different ways of crafting their bodies according to their masculine ideals. The Croatian officers were to a person muscular and spent hours pumping iron. Even the, the, there was a woman cadet, uh, a trainee, on the first ship I journeyed on, and even she had a muscular upper body and prided herself in having physical strength and being able to lift above expected for her weight band. Do you lift, bro? And she did. By contrast, the Filipino seafarers preferred cardio work or playing table tennis, and their idea of strength was not necessarily related to being muscular or top-heavy. An ethnographer of Filipino seafarers, K.B. Fayardo, has beautifully described the ways in which sailors and tomboys craft alternate forms of masculinity that challenge the neoliberal modality exported worldwide through practices of body-making and reinforced by the Philippine state through heteronormative and masculinist structures of maritime education. It is a paradox of shipboard life that loneliness is a pivotal characteristic of a place where physical intimacy defines the day-to-day -day interactions of the seafarers. In his amazing history of Lashkars on ships, Ravi Ahuja describes how this quotidian, painful experience of confinement and monotony could lead to suicide or madness. He retells the story of one sailor who burned his own eyes with caustic because he had seen shaitan, or the devil, below the deck. This life of loneliness amidst intimacy, the feeling of confinement, and the slow submersion into madness all continue to, character, all continue to characterize life aboard the ships since the period he, uh, which he wrote about, which was the early 1920s. In his mid-20th century ethnography of possession in the Gulf Coast of Iran, Ghulam Hussein Saidi had written that, and I quote, fishermen, seamen, and the women who worked on the palms are more than anyone else pr prone to be possessed by the jinns, by the czar jinns. But those who have a good and comfortable life, such as tradesmen and the captains of larger ships, are never subject to these possessing winds. Seafarers who always live at sea are often afflicted by coastal winds. Few sailors can be found who has traveled to Africa or India once or twice and has returned without these winds." End quote. He explains that seafarers pressed into service would often surrender themselves to possession after long periods at sea, and the cure required that they stay home for rest and respite, providing a break from the conditions of forced labor. Suicides and unexplained drownings and disappearances at sea also continue to afflict seafarers. 
especially those working at deck ratings and stewards and cooks. <coughs> at triple the rate of land-bound populations, and suicide is the leading cause of death for seafarers at sea. A 2010 occupational health study for British seafarers pointed that work problems, depression, hallucinations, maritime or relationship problems at home were cited as the most frequent reasons for self-harm among seafarers. The authors of the study let it pass without comment that the rate of suicides seemed to have spiked around 1970, just at the moment when open or international registries were proliferating and hard-won labor regulations were being steadily eroded. The same study showed that Lascars, or South Asian Arab African seafarers, committed suicide at a far higher rate than white seafarers. The global color line was foundational to the rates of self-harm, but also to the paucity of knowledge about suicide among seafarers from the global south. There are no comprehensive studies of suicide among seafarers from the global south unless these seafarers are included in research on suicide aboard European fleets. This vulnerability is no surprise. Aside from the context of isolation and confinement, combined with a kind of claustrophobic intimacy, the very embodied nature of work at sea, its everydayness, pervasiveness, and time and place transforms even the most banal and taken for granted aspects of life, not so ordinary when on board the ship. Eating is one such facet of life. Everybody who knows, knows I love eating. So this, there was going to be a food element to this talk. No narrative of shipboard work is ever complete without a discussion of food and the rituals surrounding meals. Hierarchies are established through the differences in food provided to crews and officers. On the two CMACGM ships on which I journeyed, the officer's mess was separated from the crew's dining room by the kitchen. The Filipino and other crew members ate together. And even the Filipino officer joined them. He didn't sit with the other officers, <clears throat> rather than eating with the European officers. The officers' tables were set hierarchically, with the captain at the head and his first mates and the chief engineer on either side of him and so on down the table. If somebody was on shift, their seat was left, alone, uh, was left empty. The passengers ate at a separate table from the officers and were served the same food as the officers. Our Filipino chef, who had worked at several expensive hotels in Dubai and aboard a cruise ship, often prepared quite standard meat-and-to-veg dishes for the officers. After a few days of quite boring meals, I timidly asked if I could be served what the crew was, was eating, uh, the Filipino crew. The chef at first demurred, telling me that the Filipino curries had been made with the meat left over from the officers' meals the previous day. I finally prevailed in my argument, and for the rest of my journey, was fed the most delicious adobos, curries, and various Southeast Asian stews that were far more delicious than the dull European menu. There, in the basic ingredients of the food, in the way they were made, in how they were eaten, global hierarchies came to the fore. The crew's meals were made with leftovers of officers' meals, and hierarchies aboard the ship were trumped by national attachments, with the Filipino officers eating with their countrymen rather than with their officer cohort. Um, if I had time, I would also do a little bit of uh, Liebe Strauss talking about how the, men, the, the officers' food was grilled, whereas the crew's food was boiled, which has gendered implications as well. But food is also something more banal and more non-negotiable. You need food to live, 
Historical accounts of shipboard life on the Indian Ocean abound with inadequate victualling of ships manned by Lascars and intransigent owners refusing to increase rations by even the smallest margins. Where any improvements in rations were wrested by European unions from the shipping firms, Lascars were excluded from these increases. On those, seafarers provided for their own meals. On all ships, very often seafarers resorted to fishing in order to supplement their rations. As far back as the early 19th century, it was well known that a paucity of certain nutrients could lead to beriberi or scurvy. And yet shipping firms were far too miserly to provide even the basic needs of their, their seafarers like lemons, which they knew fixed scurvy, but they wouldn't provide it. In fact, shortage of food aboard was the most frequent cause of mutiny <coughs> aboard ocean-going ships in the Indian Ocean. The story of hunger ships are particularly relevant in the context of the Arabian Peninsula. Because the absence of labor safeguards, the networks of capital accumulation often being densely interwoven with the royal courts, the absence of unionization, and severe limitations on the activities of other labor or seafarer right groups means that shipping firms located in the Arabian Peninsula have been especially notorious for running hunger ships. In my forthcoming book, I tell the story of a Saudi-owned and flagged ship which operated a hunger ship in 1981, progressively cutting back the food budget over the course of several weeks at sea, to the point that the seafarers had to improvise fishing nets so as not to starve. When they arrived in Rotterdam, the seafarers at last revolted, refusing to work. The shipping company, Jeddah-based Ori Navigation, in turn brought a lawsuit against them to force them to work. In the court proceedings that followed, the Dutch justice system dismissed the case, but ruled that the Filipino workers were under Philippines law, essential workers, and therefore they were prohibited from striking. So although it didn't force them to work, it also said that they were prohibited from striking. The seafarers were let go without any wages after having spent weeks hungry on board. The monthly reports of the mission to seafarers, which I had a chance to look at, are filled with stories of such hunger ships at the ports of the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Kuwait, and Oman, all the way until 2002, where the archives uh, at Hull stop. A more recent case is equally shocking. An Emirati firm, Elite Way Marine Services, seems to have a history of abandoning ships. In 2017, the owners abandoned the crew of MV uh, merchant vessel Azraq Moya, which carried building materials between Iraq and the UAE. When the carriage contract ended, the ship's owners abandoned the ship with eight Indian, one Sudanese, and one Tanzanian crew left at sea in Anchorage near the Emirati coast without 200, uh, £260,000 in unpaid wages, without food or fuel. Nor did they have any way to repatriate to their countries. To stave off starvation, the mission to seafarers and the Indian consulate provided them with paltry rations of rice and dal. And the seafarers remained on board to maintain the ship and to guarantee that they would eventually be paid their wages. If they had left the ship, they could not claim their wages. After nearly 18 months at sea, the seafarers were finally repatriated with only 40% of their wages after the ship was sold. Elite Way Marine Services also owned merchant vessel Tamim Aldar, another still more egregious case of abandonment. Stranded by its owners more than three years ago, Tamim Aldar originally had 36 crew members, of whom two Indian and two Eritrean seafarers remained stranded at sea until two months ago. 
at 25 nautical miles off the coast of the UAE. The four remaining seafarers had no fuel, they had no water, and they had scant food, and lived in a blacked-out ship. When trying to leave the ship at last, they said they'd given up on their wages, the Emirati Coast Guard forced them back under the threat of imprisonment. Their forcible return to the unsafe ship generated enough press, including by the Guardian, for the Emirati authorities to allow the men to return to the UAE. But Elite Way refuses to pay their wages. In a monthly port report, a representative of Mission to Seafarers described the Emirates of, the Emirate of Ajman as an anchorage where you can find some very dodgy ships. According to the International Maritime uh, Organization Senior Legal Council, Emirates remains one of the worst culprits sheltering abandoned ships, so ships that owners abandon with people on board who are dying of hunger but who can't get off the ship. But ships are not abandoned randomly. They are rarely left close to Sharjah or Dubai or Abu Dhabi, where the ports are crucial to the operation of the economy. And as richer emirates, they have enforcement abilities denied to Ajman. The UAE, like all other countries of the Arabian Peninsula, refuses to become a signatory to the Maritime Labor Convention, which would guarantee that at least if their ships are abandoned, insurers would pay the unpaid wages of seafarers. Further, the laissez-faire approach to business the fundamental basing of the economy on the unprotected labor of migrant workers and coercive constraints on any political or labor activism translate into hunger ships at sea. Today in the database of the abandoned, today in the database, in the database of abandoned ships maintained by the ILO, the UAE has a larger presence than any other Arab state. Final section. It is now something of a cliche to quote Michel Foucault on heterotopias when discussing ships. Foucault contrasts heterotopias to utopias. Utopias are, he says, unreal places, unreal spaces that present society itself in a perfected form or else society turned upside down. Heterotopias are by contrast, he says, counter sites in which all the other real sites that can be found within the culture are simultaneously represented, contested, and inverted. Foucault then goes on to describe ships as heterotopias par excellence, a floating piece of space, a place without a place that exists by itself, that is closed in on itself and at the same time is given over to the infinity of the sea, and that from port to port, from tack to tack, from brothel to brothel, it goes as far as the colonies in search of the most precious treasures they conceal in their gardens, end quote. Not much brotheling going on because the turnaround times are so high, sailors can't really get off the port. Though Foucault does not develop the analogic and material interconnections between the ship and the colony, I want to end this lecture by thinking through an institution that is an ambivalent site of maritime aid, Christian missions, and which connects the ship to the colony. It has been in the character of colonial racialization that the creation of an individualized atomized subject, the object of philanthropic salvage but not rights, has characterized many of these institutions. Even more, missionary work has been at the forefront of colonial, missionary work has been at the colonial, has been at the forefront of colonial conquest. As colonial states become deeply embedded, missions provides welfare services that act as stages for the work of conversion, but also as a replacement for the provision of state services that could socially embed state institutions. 
It is no coincidence that the mission to seafarers and apostleship of the sea and their Norwegian, Dutch, and German counterparts emerge around the time of great militancy in European ship and shore unions. The mission's work increased exponentially as the power of unions were eroded in the 1970s. And one can see a proliferation of missions throughout the world, and especially in some ports of the Arabian Peninsula, where unions are not allowed to operate. When the mission to seafarers began, the work of establishing a center in Dubai in the late 1970s, it was welcomed with open arms, land was granted to it by Sheikh Rashid al-Maktoum, and the financial contributions to the project included the elite of maritime commerce there. Lord Inchcape, the owner of Gray Mackenzie shipping agents, the Bahraini Khanus, whose shipping interests extended to managing Dubai's Port Rashid, George Chapman, the famous long-term Gray Mackenzie agent and advisor to Sheikh Rashid, Bill Duff, the personal advisor to the Sheikh, and so on. John Harris, whose firm planned the outward extension of the city of Dubai from the creek, from its nucleus on the creek, designed the mission's hub at Port Rashid. There's no question that the missions have filled a gap in the peninsula and so many other places where seafarers from the global south are abandoned with no way home, no way to collect months, sometimes years of back wages, and with no one to speak for them. The monthly reports of the mission to seafarers are wrenching accounts of seafarers burnt, injured, maimed, or killed aboard ships, left to starve, sometimes even without clean water or electricity on board. The mission, which continued to receive grants, continues to receive grants from donors, the laity, and of course the International Transport Workers Federation, provides what food and water it can and tries to liaise between the seafarers, shipping agents and owners, the harbor master and port authorities, labor attaches and other cons consular officers, and others who could help specific cases. But the mission also takes the responsibility off the hand of local institutions and reduces the urgency of need for such international institutions as the International Transport Workers Federations or local unions. In the monthly reports of the Dubai mission, for example, one finds a reference to a hunger ship abandoned in Fujaira. The mission's representative writes, the Norwegian captain is talking about the ITF, and I tried to, ITF, International Transport Workers Federation, and I tried to explain to him that a locally owned vessel out here operating on this coast, we had no option but to go for local pressure. In other instances, a Filipino, so it's in, in effect silencing the Norwegian guy from contacting potential campaigning uh, uh, bodies elsewhere. In another instance, a Filipino seafarer signs off his ship because he and his colleagues are terrified of a violent and drunken Russian officer on that ship. The mission representative tries to persuade them to stay and have the matter settled by the captain. It is this conciliatory mode of addressing the problems, some even matters of life and death, and its focus on the individual rather than on the collective condition of their work that transforms the mission into an extension of the system of exploitation. This is even before one considers the central aim of such missions, the salvific, the salvific or civilizing mission that tries to capture souls, not just from Islam or Hinduism, but even from other Christian sects, in particular within the Orthodox Church. There are constant accounts of how they're passing out um, Bibles, uh, sort of proper Protestant Bibles, but translated into Russian and Greek to Russian and Greek seafarers. And perhaps because of the Middle Eastern side of these missions, 
um, reports, one cannot but escape the other significant part of the work of the missions, which has to do with serving navies of world powers, including the US. A huge amount of the work that uh, particularly the missions in Dubai has is about serving the US naval ships coming through. Um, and they often throw parties for the US naval crew because of course also US Navy often has chaplains and so they get together and party complete with barbecues, and, the, and in one instance, the performance of Lydia, the belly dancer. Perhaps the most pernicious unintended consequence of having missions instead of unions or other representative organizations is that the ameliorative work itself individuates. It shifts the burden of collective problems of exploitation, inequality, and an absence of regulation from the figurative collective corpus of seafarers onto the literal shoulders of individual seafarers. It makes hunger, injury, and depression a singular problem of the person and of not the seafarer community or class. In conclusion, the world of commerce at sea has long written work, racialization, and gender on the body. The embodied corporeal work of the seafarers differs from space to space and time to time, from the stokehold and the deck to the hull and the wheel room. The hierarchies aboard the ship and on land shape these bodies and attempt to delimit their sensory and conceptual ability. The hardening of these limits happens through the uneven allocation of the very most basic needs of food, of uncontaminated water, or space to sleep in. It occurs via contracts that require some seafarers to stay at sea nine months at a time when others can return home after two. It shocks through the appearance of physical and verbal violence, of injuries and death at work. It certainly courses through the maritime life in rivulets of tedium, loneliness, melancholy, and floods of suicide and self-harm. As Butler reminded us, however, the body is also subjectivized. Writing about subjectivity is oceanic. Edward Said has said in an interview that he hopes for, and I quote his beautiful saying, human beings, he hopes for human beings that are not closed receptacles, but instruments through which other things flow. The idea is of the human being as a traveler who can have imprinted upon him or her the sights and sounds and bodies and ideas of others so that he or she could become an other and can take in as much as the sea and therefore release the shroud and the barrier and the doors and the walls that are so much a part of human existence, end quote. Life at sea hovers between the utopian life of openness, of overcoming shrouds and barriers and doors and walls, and the heterotopic space which replicates the colony and the mission. What lies in between the two spaces, between the here and now of contradictory realities and the horizon of the future, when the sea is not only a conduit of capital, cargo, and humans as cargo, is the possibility of solidarity and conviviality at sea but even more of a general strike, a revolt, a mutiny on land and at sea that will show the infinity of our sensory and conceptual ability. Thank you. Is this working? Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. I'm sure that um, there are many people who are dying to ask questions. So uh, do you want to take a, a few at a time? Yeah, or? absolutely. Yeah. And feel so. free to ask questions also if you're curious about 
shipboard things. I love to tell stories about going <laughs> okay. on the ship. Actually, so. Um, Can I grab my pen so that I can? Um... Fantastic. Ready. Okay. Yeah. Th thank you very much. That was uh, wonderfully rich. I very much enjoyed it. Um, just a quick question, which is, uh, are you able to speak a bit about access, like your access? Mm -hmm. um, was it difficult, easy? Why this particular company? Mm -hmm. um, why no trips from the Middle East to Europe? Some of these boring, pragmatic questions would be interesting to So hear. I found out about access. Oh, should I, should I take more to multiple ones? Well, okay. No, no, that's quite, let's, let's take multiple ones. Were you the only passenger aboard the ship? And if not, who were the other people? Were they other researchers or eccentric holidaymakers? Mm -hmm. What kind of people? Yes. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask about, um, so you mentioned the, the unprotected, unprotected labor of migrant workers. Yeah. And I wanted to ask if this reminded you a bit of the system of um, sponsorship that yes. there exists in, in the Middle East known as the kafala system and whether the, the, the presence of workers on these boats uh, resembled a bit also a condition of imprisonment upon ships. And also, um, maybe a, a bit more um, unrelated, whether you have discussed with officers on board of these ships um, the Belt and Road Initiative mm -hmm. by um, the Chinese government and what impact this can have on transnational um, trade mm -hmm. at sea. Right. I'm going to answer the, this, this set of questions. <coughs> so, access. Um, Charmaine Chouas, an amazing uh, IR scholar whose book is going to come out in the next couple of years, she actually got permission from Evergreen, which is a Taiwanese uh, shipping company, to go on board the ship as a researcher. And uh, she went trans-Pacifically, and um, she had to sign non-disclosure agreements of various sorts or promise certain things, uh, and she worked aboard the ship. I um, didn't quite go that route. I actually had funding and so I could pay to go uh, as a passenger. And around the time that I was starting this project, read about a guy who had uh, done something similar, but in, a diff but in, um, in, in the Arctic, actually. Uh, and uh, he had put down the name of a freight travel agency, which is no longer in business, sadly. Um, at the bottom of his article in FT, in Financial Times. And so I actually contacted that freight, freight travel agency, and they had a list of different itineraries. So I was limited both by questions of funding and also by the fact that um, I have kids. And so I, you know, the, the trip could be courtesy of my, uh, the, the, the father of my children could be up, up to about three weeks. But beyond that, it was a little bit um, 
an imposition, but also I would miss them. And so that's to some extent this defined itinerary. Why did I choose to go from Malta to Dubai? Because it was easier to get on board the ship at Malta and off the ship at Dubai. It would have been very difficult. They were not accustomed to passengers coming on board ships in Dubai. In fact, they were not at all accustomed to passengers getting off a freighter in Dubai. I was the first person, and it was this, this was such a rare thing that when I went the second time, all of the guys actually remembered me from the previous time, about 20 months before. So it was a very unusual thing to arrive as a passenger in Dubai. But in Malta, it was very normal. I mean, there, were, there were other passengers that were getting on all the time. And you know, it, also Malta seemed, it was a really nice holiday destination. So there were lo lots of Northern Europeans, apparently that come and board the ship there. Um, so those were uh, access routes. Um, I really, really would love one day to actually do the longer trip because based on what everybody talked about, the trip through the Malacca Straits and on to China is absolutely fascinating. Uh, both different politics, different ways of arrival at the ports and things like that. But, um, but that's for another time. I definitely want to do this. I'm not tired of this project at all. Um, I, on the first ship, I was, not, I was not the only passenger. And yes, the others were eccentric holiday goers. There were two 75-year-old uh, German women who this was, they traveled together. They're, both of their husbands had died about 10 or 15 years before. But over the course of the past 15 years, they traveled once every two years on a freighter. And I'm so jealous because they had gone to South America, they'd gone through the Panama Canal, which has locks, so it's different than going through the Suez Canal. They'd gone trans-Pacifically, they'd gone, they were amazing. And they were very, they, they had a routine that was even stricter than the ship's routine. So they would have coffee at 10, they had very good coffee and they wouldn't invite me because they didn't want to run out of coffee. And they had brought their own very nice wine, which again, they wouldn't invite me because they were about to run out of it. So, but they were, but they had a kind of a routine. On the second ship, and also that was the ship that the captain's wife had come along and there was a woman cadet. So very unusually, there were five women on board. That's, everybody was saying that had never seen anything like it. On the second ship, um, which was just as big, there were 27 crew members and officers and me, and they were all guys, and I was the only passenger. And in fact, a lot of those people hadn't seen passengers on board a freighter before. So, um, but, I, but, but the, the German women were fascinating. They were like, they didn't like cruise ships because they didn't like the false sociality. That's what they actually said. <laughs> totally agree. Um, the question of unprotected labor, uh, kefala, yes. And in part, part of the reason that I wanted to talk about the hunger ships and the mission is because to me, the echoes of the, um, of the ways in which labor is constrained through visa systems, through being enclosed, through life and work being very intimately tied together, seems to be like the kind of labor restrictions that exist in the Middle East, but also increasingly elsewhere. I mean, in Singapore and uh, Hong Kong, in many of the sort of rising city-states um, uh, of the global south, but also other places, other port cities, those forms of labor restrictions are increasingly being put into place, even in places where they didn't used to exist. So in some ways, I'm not saying that the kefala system acts as a model. Models like that existed in other places as well. But it is very indicative of the direction towards which most corporations are hoping that labor strictures and restrictions go. And so to me, that echo was very, very strong. 
Um, the absence of union, uh, access to union representation, uh, that was also very similar. And the very fact that most of these shipping companies in all of the various archival documents that I've gone through over the course of the archival documents that cover the, since the 1970s when most of the Arabian Peninsula um, countries established big shipping firms, um, the, the, the regime or the hierarchies of labor in those shipping firms totally also reflects land-bound businesses. So you end up having ownership that is local capital. You have some technical people on land who are from Europe or from India, and then you have Global South workers on board the ships. So that, that hierarchy totally reflects it. And it is similar to imprisonment. So there are, but I think that that is just a condition actually of being a seafarer. And increasingly, thanks to the US since September 2001, uh, the ability to leave port is becoming more and more and more difficult. So they used to be able to just show their seafarers cards and they wouldn't need a visa passport and that uh, they would need a passport, they would need a seafarers card, but they would be able to leave. But since September 2011 and tightening of security and the requirement that the US has imposed on other countries, most seafarers can't leave port because they can't leave, they have to have a visa. Um, so they are in a sense imprisoned. They can't, they can't go to the cities for R&R &R. Um, in, in most places, not everywhere, but most places. But actually when we were on that trip, on, on the second trip, the only place they could get off at was Damiata. Um, and they didn't, we didn't have time. They had only 12 hours in Damietta. In Beirut, CMACGM has banned them because of, because of worries about they may be kidnapped, which is completely stupid. In Mersin, they had been banned because of the coup that had happened not too long before that, uh, or the attempt at coup that had happened before that, so they were afraid of that. In Jeddah, they're not allowed to come on. Uh, they, they're not even allowed to get off the ship, so. Um, as for on, uh, One Belt, One Road, I mean, these guys are One Belt, One Road, right? Because they are the massive container ships that carry either um, equipment, uh, high-tech equipment over to China for manufacturing and then carry the manufactured goods back. Um, and, the, and, the, and CMA CGM in particular is very embedded in this because more than any of the other Europe-based firms, including Maersk, which is Danish, and MSC, which is Italian, uh, CMACGM, because of its owners who are, um, who are Syrian Lebanese, has connections to the Arab world and also further on to Asia. And it has extremely intimate connections with the ports there, with shipping companies there, etc. And so in a sense, these guys are one belt, one road. And um, I mean, there's, they see the transformations happening, but the biggest transformation that they all were talking about on my second trip was actually the expansion of Suez Canal, which to them was really amazing. So, and you asked, actually, you asked about CMA, CGM. Why did I go on them? It was complete happenstance that they happened to be Lebanese-Syrian. Of course, that ended up being really great because then I could actually talk to the people on the ship about what it was like to work for this company and the history of the company, which I want to write about at some stage because it's absolutely fascinating. Um, but, uh, but they also, Maersk does not allow passengers because of liability. MSC allows you, but none of their routes were routes that I wanted to do. They didn't stop in the Middle Eastern ports. CMA, CGM did, and that was why it was so inviting.
Hi, um, I have a question around the photography, which is quite good to follow the story, um, but it doesn't feature any humans, and I wondered why that is, and if there was a personal choice of yours, because of pers like. So um, I don't, I, I don't feature. What was that? Uh, it doesn't feature any people, and I wonder if there's ah. a personal choice of yours because of identity or um, privacy issues. Because of identity. Well, because of a part of a handful. You know? Yeah, I, yeah. I'll, I'll talk about that actually. Um, thanks so much. My question is about um, other forms of movement at sea. Um, so was there any debate among the crew or officers about encounters with migrant boats? Um, mm. And I, I ask that because it is well known that merchant vessels are redirecting courses to avoid migrant boats, for example, off the shores of Libya. Uh, and also, you know, going toward Malta. Yeah. So just wondering whether you've encountered any of these discussions. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Professor. I myself lived on and off. Uh, I was sailing with my dad. Uh, he was a muscle mariner. Uh, wow. So uh, my question is, so one of the things I noticed was that back then there was a position called as radio officer. Yeah. And uh, that's not there anymore. So if you could just elaborate on uh, automation on the ship and what uh, the crew members or the officers themselves think about this. Yeah. Thank you. Should we take one more question? Sure. Course. Thank you. Um, I have a few questions, but yeah. quite related. Um, my question is: How many ships go per month to, like, how many Dubai? ships per month or per week? How often do they go? Uh, um, the second question is, what do they mostly carry? What are the materials they carry? And how important is it for uh, urban development for Middle Eastern states? So for example, like um, Dubai would be considered as a um, quite a significant city for development. So how important are these ships to, to their development? And especially for um, smaller cities like Beirut. Yeah. And you, you mentioned about um, unprotected labor of immigrants. Um, would you categorize the, um, these immigrants and their labor as equal to or on par to um, like TNCs in China or South Asia and how they are exploited? Okay, so um, I uh, didn't include pictures, although I do have loads of pictures of people. Um, because despite the fact that I don't like, you know, picture human-less images, I didn't get a chance to get the permission of the seafarers. So um, for these kinds of things, I, I mean, I have loads of pictures of the seafarers and, and names and things because I don't have their email addresses to get their permission. I've chosen not to include anything, especially because some of the things that they've spoken to me, which is going to be published because I was on a CMAC GM ship, people would know who they are and what they are, and I sort of don't want too much information to be revealed about them without having gotten their permission. Um, so in the first ship that I went on in 2000, January 2015, there was a lot more conversation about interdiction, uh, actually interdiction boats, um, and also about migrant boats. Uh, and in fact, one of the officers on that ship had been on a ship where they specifically actually rescued migrants. They, they had migrants come and come onto the deck of the ship because their ship was sinking. And this was before the uh, before it was before the uh, various 
um, maritime policing agencies hardened the borders. And so in some ways, it was actually really interesting to talk to these guys about the process. Now, on the ships that I was on, everybody was deeply sympathetic to these migrants. But there are limitations on what they could do, not only limitations set by the various European states, but also by CMACGM, the company itself. So one of the things that you mentioned was that they try to avoid the Libyan coast. There are very specific routes that they have to traverse. They are essentially corridors through which they travel. And those corridors are decided at the headquarters. Um, so on the first trip that we were going on, um, <clears throat> And there are certain places where you're supposed to convoy. Uh, the Suez Canal, you, you convoy. Coming onto Jabal Ali, you convoy. But also one of the places that you convoy because of security issues is through waters of uh, Somalia uh, and Gulf of Aden. And they shifted the route there, took us out of the convoy in order to save on fuel. So, and the captain was really pissed off at this because he really didn't like going so close to the coast because he was a little bit afraid of skiffs coming and um, pirates coming. But anyway, so he had to actually obey CMACGM. So there's a there's an extent there's a degree to which uh, the the companies dictate this, but are not ever counted as being part of the process which tries to prevent the encounter between merchant vessels and the migrants. And I think that that's really interesting. It's one of the silences around this issue. Um, and perhaps because most of the seafarers have a code of behavior that says, we have, if these people are sinking at sea, we have to rescue them. That's just how it is. And unfortunately, you know, they're circumvented from doing so. Um, automation. Now, I actually have another article that I'm writing about automation, which to me is absolutely fascinating. Um, and automation actually started properly with tankers, with oil tankers, because that's one of the first um, sets of ships where so much of the work could be done without humans, because you just plugged in the oil into the, into the hull of the ship, and that was the work that was done. Um, in terms of what happens in the wheel room, I actually had another story, which I had to drop because I was already talking too much. But when we got to the, when we got to the Gulf of Aden, there's a number of things that the ships do in order to prepare for potential piracy. The number of piracy attacks have, has decreased from 400 at the height of it to 40 a year, so it's not that many. But nevertheless, they have to do these things. So one of the things they do is they close the little doors that are close to the water. They put high-pressure water hoses on the decks in order to fend off people. Container ships are really usually not targets because their freeboard is so high that the grappling hooks that the, pirate, the pirates often use to try to get on board doesn't reach so but nevertheless one of the other things that they do is they actually get uh, experienced seafarers to come and stand additional experienced seafarers to come and stand watch in the wheel room and one of the things that absolutely blew me away was that these experienced seafarers could see with their bare eye things I could not see with a binocular um, and, uh, and, and they would joke with me about it. And at first, I thought that they were just pulling my legs. So they would say, oh, that's a pod of dolphins. That's not a boat. And I'm looking, and there's nothing out there on the horizon. I look on the radar screen, see nothing on the radar screen. I get the binoculars, high-powered binoculars, look over there, see nothing. And then you go by another, I don't know, 10 minutes, and there's a pod of dolphins. So these guys have developed abilities that despite the fact that there is 
processes of automation going on at an intense rate. They have developed particular embodied skills that still continue to survive. Knowledge, for example, of stellar navigation is something that the US Navy gave up in 2006 because it thought it could do everything with GPS, et cetera, et cetera. And actually in 2016, it has reinstated it again. So there are particular ways in which the, the question of automation, and, and I'm mentioning the wheel room because you mentioned the radio officer. So there, there are particular ways in which the embodied knowledge, embodied abilities are offset, balanced, in competition with forms of automation. But there are other forms of automation which the seafarers have not been able to forestall. Um, as I said, the, the, the labor aboard tankers, for example, has been reduced drastically. In fact, tankers have fewer people on them than container ships do, even if they are as just as big, because there's just so, so little to do on board there. And with containers coming, you've uh, lost both sailors who, who make sure that the goods, the bulk goods are in place in the hull, and you've gotten rid of people on shore because everything is now being done with machines. So automation is actually quite, has had a really pernicious effect in many ways on the shape of the port life, on the shape of labor. In other ways, it's made it easier and more skilled because, of course, now you don't have people that um, just do basic muscle work. One thing that was interesting to me, though, and, and I, I can go on about this for ages because it is actually one of my current interests, is when we arrived in Khan on the first trip, um, Korfakon at the time in 2015 was considered to be the fastest turnaround place in the whole world. It, was, it had the highest, the fastest turnaround per ship or per TEU, the 20 foot equivalent container, than any other place. And I imagine, and they were bragging about this, and I imagine that this might be because of uh, automation. One of the things that I discovered was, of course, that they had actually loads of people doing kinds of work that in other ports, including Dubai, was done by machines. So, for example, undoing the latches between two different containers, there was a guy who was walking around above like 20 containers, 20 high, with a little bamboo pole, literally a little bamboo pole, and was undoing the latches. And here he is, he's looking down, and it's like, 20, as I said, 20 containers deep. He could have fallen down and died. Labor was cheaper than automation in that instance. So there is this constant calculation that is going on there, and I think that that... Um, the calculation, as well as the embodied knowledge that people have and are trying to maintain despite everything, is something that I want to write about a little bit more. Very good question. We go on about it for hours. How many ships per month? Um, it's a, it's, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of ships per month that traverse the seas. So depending on which port you're talking about, Jabal Ali um, has... Uh, has ships coming in at the rate when trade is good. So I think this is also important. When trade is good, it has ships coming in at extraordinary rates and it has to turn them around in 18 hours to 24 hours in order for more ships to come in. So when trade was good in January 2015, um, we had to sit at anchor, whereas in um, 2016, we were allowed to come on board. In terms of, so the, the statistics are out there, the um, uh, UNCTAD, UNCTAD, actually has an annual, biannual report on maritime uh, transport, which is very, very good, and it'll have all the statistics in there, including for specific ports, uh, because the statistic, statistics are divided by bulk shipping, cars, containers, tankers, 
and so on, depending on ship size, et cetera. So I can't roll off what the number is. It's just too many to, to mention. Um, in terms of how important the shipping is to these ports, so Dubai is a transshipment port, like Singapore, which means that the, what is produced in Dubai or what Dubai itself consumes does not matter to the port economy. What matters is what comes in and is shipped out. So Dubai is really the hub for most of the Middle East and actually a large portion of South Asia. So huge ships come in. It has the capability of taking care of huge ships and then sending smaller ships um, up the Gulf to Kuwait or Bahrain, but also to Pakistan and India and even further out to, um, to uh, East Africa. So there, it's enormously important. And it's one of the three things that has been in their strategic plan, along with tourism uh, and trade as part of their strategic planning. So it's enormously important to them. To, to, to Beirut, it is more significant as a source of local consumption. And since the Syrian uprising and the subsequent war, essentially stuff coming into Beirut can't go anywhere else except for Lebanon. And so that has, to some extent, meant a decline in portability. But now, interestingly, one of the things that one hears about the kind of a neoliberal rush to reconstruct everything in Syria, one of the things one hears also is that there's, there's been huge plans to build both Beirut and the port of Tripoli in the north in order to allow for reconstruction goods to come in to go to Syria. So that's an interesting thing to keep an eye on. Um, there was also a final question about how they're treated. Um, I mean, it depends on which shipping company you work for, but not just which shipping company you work for in terms of the relative treatment, but also which flag you're under. So if you're flying, if you're on a ship that's under Liberian flag, chances are you're not treated as well, you're not paid as much, and you're not as safe as you would be if you're under, let's say, a French or German flag. So I think that it really depends on uh, where you work for and who you work for. Thank you for your, uh, for your comments, very interesting. Um, so you quoted CLR James on, uh, on his um, account of ships and the fact that seafarers have no allegiance, a bit of an, an exotic view perhaps on ships and seafarers, this uh, space without space. Mm -hmm. You expanded on that, citing Foucault as well. In, uh, in his description of heterotopias. I was wondering, but as, as you pointed out as well, there are um, clear limits to this um, romantic, romantic exotic uh, utopia of, of ships. And there are clear um, national lines, uh, global color line, aspects according to which uh, life is uh, ruled at sea. I was wondering whether you witnessed any transnational solidarity instances or everything was ruled by nationality. I, I struggle to see maybe class, but perhaps nationality, you described the, you know, the Slavs, uh, Croats, the Filipinos eating different foods. Um, another thing I was curious about is if you could expound briefly maybe on um, uh, grilled versus boiled food.
food and, and how that is gendered. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a foodie as well, so. Uh, oh, you need to read. You yeah, need I, to read def- I will. The I, raw and the cooked. Yeah, I, but, but not to know. Thank you. Any, okay, any excuse to talk about food? Hi. Um, I noticed that a few of your sites had environmental themes. So the one with the yellow slick on the sea and the, the rubbish dump. And I wondered if you might talk a little bit more about the environmental dimensions of shipping. Mm. Yeah, definitely. That was my question. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Hi, Professor Khalili. Uh, thank you for this beautiful talk. Uh, my question is relating to the geopolitical kind of uh, issues surrounding commerce and sea. So, for example, uh, can you make any links between the conflict in Yemen and securing Bab al-Mandib? Yeah. And uh, what can you draw upon the, uh, between brackets, the siege of Qatar? And what did that, how did that kind of change the routes and the, what was happening in the Persian Gulf? Thank Absolutely. you. There's one person. And then I'll, yeah, get on with this. Oh, and then one other person right there. Um, I'm I'm a Filipina, so your talk really resonated with me. And for the social structure, it really struck with me about the food as well. Yeah. That that the food of the crew is a leftover of those who are officers of the officers. Yeah. And of course, I thank you for, for taking note of the cultural distinction of the karaoke and then the food. Thank you. Pleasure. The karaoke is fantastic. Uh, hi, I was just wondering why aren't all of the ships under flags of convenience? Mm. Does that have to do with the strength of unions or something else entirely? Very good question. Okay. Uh, CLR James, um, I once gave this talk in front of Michael Hart, and he was devastated that the idea of the ship as a utopia was not was not um, the reality of it. And he tried to argue with me about it, which is fine, because I do think that there is something still about the ship as a space of imagination, which is really important. And I actually think that even the, the, the workers, with all of the tedium that they feel, with all of the incredible imposition, with the incredible devastation that they're under, um, that there is an element of going to sea, which is still something of an adventure, even to the guys who had been on board the ship for 30, 40 years, even to the ones that constantly complained about the, and rightfully, about the horrendous conditions at work. Um, It partially has to do with the lore of being at sea. It it might have to do with the fact that uh, it it does feel like an escape. And in certain ways, it also has to do with the fact that on the ships that I was on, because of the relatively better conditions of wages, et cetera, because it was flying a British flag, it was under not a flag of convenience, the wages were not as bad as they could have been. The, the Filipino crew still got paid a quarter of what the Croatian crew got paid, or a Croatian captain got paid, and a half of what the Croatian officers got paid, but still it was a, it was a substantial wage. And so there is this, these calculations that people make about their lives, which are quite important. But what you asked was about the questions of nationalism and transnational solidarity. So there are instances 
um, of transnational solidarity aboard ships where people do protect one another. I, as I said earlier, there is a kind of a code of seafarer behavior where because you are at sea for such a long amount of time with one another, that the idea of nationality disappears in the moment of crisis. So in the hunger ships, for example, you, you find that the people who may have been at each other's throat for whatever reason end up actually working in solidarity. But one of the most depressing statistics that I can give you is that there is a insurance uh, company called uh, the Strike Club, which uh, insures maritime stuff, both on board the ship and on land against strikes. And I have been on their um, newsletter, monthly newsletter, since I started this project. And in that period, which is about five or six years now, there's not been a single strike aboard the ship. But there have been loads and loads and loads of strikes on land. Now, Marcel van der Linden has written some really interesting stuff about this and about how the isolation on board the ship and, in fact, the transnationalization of the, sh the ship since the emergence of shipping unions in the 1920s might have had something to do with this. Um, but, I mean, the statistics are actually quite disheartening. Um, into, and, and there are solidarities that do emerge. I think I mentioned to Maurice earlier that actually people do care about, for example, the migrants that are crossing the borders. And that has nothing to do with nationalism or labor. It has to do with a kind of a sense of human solidarity. Uh, but companies won't allow it. The security, border uh, policing, security, maritime security companies won't allow it. Nobody will allow that. So it is an interesting and depressing moment, I think, as labor is being reconfigured aboard ships. The grilled in the oil. So Levi Strauss argues that, um, that uh, grilled meat, you, you grill meat as a, as a man, you, you take it, you put it on fire, and it's an extremely wasteful way to cook meat because all of the fat drips into the fire and it's wasted. But it is something that Strauss argue, Livy Strauss argues is what men do. Whereas if you boil the food, it's usually what women do. It's slower cooking, it takes much longer, uh, and you don't waste any of the fat that drops. So boiling, making stews is women's food, whereas grilling is what guys do. There's this, he, he, I, mean, it's, I mean, that's why I didn't incorporate it into there. But to me, that was interesting that grilled meat was associated and that grilled and roasted meat, which has the same qualities, was associated with European cooking in, in, in both the ships I was on and the Filipino chef's uh, mind, whereas stews and adobos and curries, which are so great, were considered to be Filipino foods. So there's an interesting way in which this also, I think, tracks the class, etc. Environmental themes. So I actually discuss this a lot more in my book. Um, and there are, there are a lot of things one can see. So for example, certain seas when you get to, there's oil slicks everywhere. There's plastic everywhere. There's rubbish everywhere. And one sees that and it's actually really quite depressing. The ship under whose flag you fly will have to obey the environmental um, uh, regulations of that country, and that includes having high sulfur or, or low sulfur fuel so you don't put sulfur out, um, disposing of uh, sludge in particular ways, disposing of um, the water, uh, the ballast water in particular ways, disposing of waste in particular ways. And there are very strict um, regulations about this. Interestingly, um, Dubai has very has actually stricter regulations about these kinds of environmental stuff in port than any of the other 
ports on the Arabian Peninsula does. And in part, it is because um, if the stuff washes out, the second strategic economic thing, which is tourism and the use of beaches, will be actually devastated. So I think that that's quite interesting, but the restrictions are there. Um, but a lot of these ships actually don't. And so you do hear about sludge and ballast water uh, being released in all sorts of ways. One of the interesting things, however, is that in more recent times, there have been in most of the ports of Global South, actually in some of the Global North as well, people buy the sludge off the ships and use them as fuel on land. And so the sludge is no longer waste. It has you know, not matter out of place. It is now something that can be monetized. And so it, in fact, benefits the ships to bring the sludge to port and sell it there. So those are stuff. I also talk about lots of other things in the book about construction of the ports and the, what that means in terms of dredging and um, land reclamation and things like that. But it's, uh, there is actually huge issues involved with that. Geopolitically, yes. Um, so one of the things that everybody I spoke to who has had anything to do with the port of Aden, anybody I spoke to said to me was that the devastation of the ports in, uh, the, in, in uh, Yemen were intended to benefit the Emirates and Saudi Arabia. That there was a very conscious effort to ruin Hodeida and Aden in order for business from those ports to go elsewhere, in particular to Jabal Ali. Because Dubai Ports World used to manage the port of Aden and they, they bribed Ali Abdullah Saleh to get that concession. And they did such a bad job of it that there were demonstrations by everybody, including the workers on the port. And they finally, uh, the port actually paid them $35 million to leave the management of the port. And then of course, the first place that gets bombed and destroyed is the Adani port. Um, and now the first place that they're claiming to be coming to develop is the Adani port, and it's going to be Dubai Ports War. In terms of the Qatar boycott, that has had some really interesting effects. So, for example, Qatar's ports used to be transshipment receivers of goods that came into Dubai. The moment that the boycott happened, those ships could no longer go to Dubai to deliver to the ports in Qatar, which have shallower water, so those big ships couldn't go there. Uh, so Salala and then Sohar in, uh, in uh, Oman ended up becoming transshipment ports for Qatar. And Qatar also was building a port, Port Hamad, which was going kind of slowly, kind of maybe, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, and suddenly it's now operating. So, so that actually resulted in a kind of a reconfiguration of ports, and they're obviously going to be competing against Jabal Ali, in particular the Omani ports. So that's quite interesting. Um, I'm really grateful that you found my comments on the food and the karaoke truthful. Those guys were amazing. I just so enjoyed their company. And also they were the only ones who would invite me to socialize with them. The Croatian officers weren't interested in socializing with me. So it was great. It was lovely hanging out and doing karaoke. I didn't sing though. Oh my God, have you ever heard me sing? I wouldn't want to inflict that on anybody. Flags of convenience. So the reason that not all ships are under flags of convenience are twofold. In some places, it is because of the power of unions. So in the US, um, any coastal trade, so, so uh, trade that goes from one coast to another coast, cannot be under any flag but the US. Transnational trade can, but uh, coastal trade cannot. And that was because of the original power of the unions, but also the power of the shipping companies that didn't want to compete with anybody else. So that was one thing. The second thing is that part of the reason that uh, not every ship has moved to flags of convenience is because not all flags are welcomed into European ports. Uh, 
or ports elsewhere, in part because of the disobedience to regulations having to do with both labor and environmental more than labor. So in a way, that's part of the reason why the ha all the ships haven't been moved to flags of convenience. But so, sorry? They, I mean, companies can have flag ships under all sorts of flags. So CMA CGM has ships that go under British flag, and then it has ships that go under Liberian flag and Panama flag. And the Liberian ships mostly do trade with um, West Coast of Africa in particular. So, so it's interesting. So there's, there's, there's elements of different forms of mobilization, both unions and environmental, that have in some ways limited the power of flags of convenience, limited the depredations. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you very much for excellent questions. It's really enjoyable.